0: It. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Acts of Pod. I'm your host of Axe of Pod, Brandon Hsu. And uh, today, a very special guest, Maddie Rifkin. Maddie, welcome to Ax of Pod.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Maddie and I have been working together for a little while. Uh, she's doing some tremendous things in the shared accommodation space. Uh, we actually met kind of by... Virtue of her being kind of tangentially related to the micromobility industry, where you were you were running a fleet of scooters at that time, Maddie, wasn't that right?
1: I was, yeah, for about three months of my life, (laughs) scariest time of my life ever.
0: But perfect time for us to meet, so that worked. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But your business model has changed a little bit over the course of our at least our time working together, and I know the kind of the arc of the business. But why don't you give the listeners a little maybe Reader's Digest version of kind of where you started and where you are now?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And it actually takes us well before scooters because I started Mount when I was 12 years old as a bike lock company, which kind of alludes to how I got into scooters.
0: (laughs) Right, right.
1: Got a patent for it when I was that age and kind of just wanted to be an inventor, an entrepreneur, CEO. That whole path seemed very fascinating. Although when I was that age, I had no idea how to become a CEO. Little did I know, all you had to do was like start a business.
0: <laughs> I hardly uh, knew how to leave my house at twelve years old. So I mean, you—I think you were on a different a different trajectory than most.
1: I think so. My parents definitely thought I was uh, sp- special. I guess you could say. <laughs> uh, but yes, got that patent, and then kind of just started putting the tools around me to build this company, and ended up at Northeastern University where I studied entrepreneurship, and that's really when I dove headfirst into this lock mobility world that then became micro mobility. And I was building a bike lock. It was pretty cool. It was like a retracting six foot cable built right into the frame. So it was there when you needed it there when you didn't, although no one needed a new bike lock. And then, you know, scooters popped up bird and lime. And I was like, well, they're probably going to need a lock. And ours actually worked pretty perfectly for a scooter. That's how I found myself in that world and worked alongside a lot of those big companies with the locking infrastructure, with the city governments, met a lot of great people. That's how we met. And then didn't really want to do the whole scooter thing. We had a fair amount of scooters just from prototyping. And that's how I ended up in the Airbnb world, the shared economy space, was because I thought if we put scooters at Airbnb properties, that might be a better way to facilitate this market. You don't have to work with city governments. It's a bit more responsible. And you're taking the scooter directly to these people that were using them, which was the tourists, which is why I accidentally ran a fleet of scooters for a few months. <laughs> <It was laughs> because I own the scooters. I put them at Airbnb properties. And then I would show up and talk to the guest and be like, hey, you should rent this. And then, you know, I got a call on my birthday in the middle of the night being like, hey, I rented your scooter and I don't know how to get home. And I'm like, that's not what my job is. <laughs>
0: that's that's not good. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I was like, how do I get out of that world? Because I didn't want to be an operator. And that's when I really stumbled upon the big problem that Mount is actually solving to this day, which is that travelers go to places, they go on vacation, and then 83% of them are spending money on experiences, tours, excursions, things. But your classic Airbnb host, they're looked at as a local. You're going to ask them what to do, where to go, but they really can't help you book anything or do anything. It's very dispersed and you're going to end up on Viator, TripAdvisor, maybe with a tourist trap, not anything good. And so that's kind of what Mount has become is we've become this huge marketplace that takes these excursions, these tours, even rentable equipment. I mean, it could be a bike to go on a place, fun tour, and we turn it into rentable amenities and excursions and really just want to give this traveler a great place and vacation and not just a place to stay
0: yeah so tell me more about the excursion piece of it so how are you getting involved in kind of the the traveler's itinerary from that standpoint and how does that how does that interact with your technology? how does the traveler do that
1: yeah so at first we thought you know Airbnb hosts want to offer these amazing experiences to their guests let's start with rentable gear so the premise was put a few electric bikes, scooters, golf carts, kayaks, paddle boards, like you name it, at a property. And then the guests can come and rent it. And now it's facilitating that whole process. They're having great experience. But not every Airbnb host wanted to be the owner and manager of the gear. You know, they're already sure. doing that for their house. And they're like, that's a full-time business. <laughs> Turns out there's a lot of other locals that do have the gear that do want to own and manage and supply it to the guests. So that's kind of the piece we were missing that we've added where it's like, okay, your Airbnb host can offer this amazing stuff. But they don't have to own and manage it. They can pull it from our marketplace, which is where we're kind of getting this inventory from is just any local out there.
0: So obviously, this was not something that Airbnb tackled. You know, how did you discover kind of the the delta in their offering and how you can kind of bolt on to what they're already doing?
1: I think it actually comes down to the traveler. And I was one of them. This same experience happened to me. I was living in New York, and I wanted to go to Iceland. And actually, that wasn't even my destination of choice. I just wanted to see the Northern Lights. And I was like, Iceland's fairly close, cheap flight, let's go. But it was winter and I lived in New York. So I didn't have hiking boots. I didn't have rain pants. (laughs) I had a hat. So that was great. I didn't even have like spikes that you put on your hiking boots to be able to walk on ice. Like I didn't have any of that. And so because Mount didn't exist, I actually had to go and buy it, which was really unfortunate. So I went to REI, bought all my stuff, spent a lot of money for then this five days in Iceland. It was great. I used it all. But I had to lug it home with me and then now it's sitting in my closet collecting dust because, you know, I'm not going to Iceland anytime soon. I just did right. that. So if Mount had existed, what would have happened is I would have traveled with a backpack to Iceland, connected with my local who happened to be an Airbnb host named Trigva, and he would have had all this stuff for me I could have rented. And if he didn't have it, he could have connected me to other people using Mount that did have it and I could have just rented all of this for maybe a few hundred dollars as opposed to a few thousand <laughs> for buying it. Right didn't have to lug it home and then honestly have this more sustainable aspect because someone else can now rent it and use it. So that's kind of where this premise of Mount comes from. It's like, what do you buy when you travel that you only end up using once? Let's get rid of that mindset and start renting.
0: Yeah, I think it's a great idea. And I think the industry is starting to realize this too. I think, yeah, you might've even commented on the post, but I saw that Was it an Asian airline that wanted to start supplying clothing to travelers? Because nobody wants to travel with anything anymore, right?
1: Yeah, they don't. And actually, Japan is on the forefront of this just as a country. Their airline has launched a clothing business that rents it to their travelers instead of coming with suitcases. But there's a lot of actually businesses in Japan, too. Like when you are going to ski, they'll rent you the clothes that you need to ski because that stuff's bulky and you don't want to go with it. So yeah, on the forefront of my vision... I was probably predicted this year and a half ago, Japan Airlines slash Japan is now taking that and running with it. And hopefully the rest of the world won't be far behind.
0: Do you think it is a generational idea or premise to have kind of a, a very minimalist approach to traveling? Or do you see this happening kind of throughout or transcending age, age groups?
1: I think it can definitely transcend age groups. I mean, I think, you know, you got to look at Airbnb, Uber, Lyft. They're all shared economies and they had one core group that really adopted it. And now no one really gets in taxis because Uber is so much more efficient and it doesn't matter what age you are, where you're living. Everyone's taking an Uber to the point where they'll probably call it Ubering. Now, same is actually just starting to happen with Airbnb. Airbnb had its core customer group, which was a probably younger traveler demographic, partly because sometimes Airbnbs were hit or miss and that (laughs) demographic didn't care as much. Then COVID hit and everyone started staying in them because they wanted the house. You know, they're like, I don't want to go stay in a cramped hotel. And now Airbnb is becoming way more popular with every generation and a lot more use. So I think Mount will probably go through the same life cycle where we're going to start targeting the Gen Z as our traveler, the nomadic traveler. But I have the feeling this will transcend age groups and demographics.
0: So then where do you see the company going in terms of its, I guess, both its offerings and its geography or, or whatever, you know, however you want to describe it? I mean... Is it going to be a place where you travel to an Airbnb, you don't need to bring anything? Or are you going to be targeting specific rentable, you know, rentable pieces?
1: I mean, the goal is everything. So what I envision is this Mount Traveler. So it is someone that goes with a backpack and then finds everything they need in destination. One, because it's more sustainable. But two, because they really want to be connected to the locals. I mean, there's a lot of people that travel these days that book just the property, hotel, hostel, whatever it may be. And then just go to a local bar to find the locals to ask them what to do. And that's how they plan their vacation. Uh, And that's becoming a lot more common because I think we're much pickier about if we're spending the money, you know, we want that local experience. I'm not going to go sit five hours on a boat with 100 other tourists to go see a dolphin. That's not what I came to do. But will I go find a local who will track me through the jungle? Absolutely. (laughs) So I think it is just, you know, what do you want out of your vacation? And are you that mount traveler? Are you embodying this like responsible travel, live like a local and just keep moving? that's kind of, I think, what we're changing.
0: So, I mean, from your standpoint, and I don't know if this is data-driven or you have the metrics or not, but I mean, how do you think about or pick the year that you want to rent? Obviously, if you were doing the Japanese airline mentality where they're looking at clothing, obviously clothes are very personal, right? Everybody wears different clothes. They have different sizes, different fits, you know, how do you buy enough of something? How do you think about that? How do you think about the gear in that sort of relationship?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for us, you start with like the adventure angle because that is like very specific. So a great example of this, we just partnered with Ski Butler because they'll provide ski and snowboard rentals. So Mount doesn't have to own it. They own all the inventory, but we connect them to the people renting. I think that's a great example of like, they've already professionalized it. We're just making it easier for travelers to reach them. And then you have someone all the way down to like probably a local in Colorado that might just have one pair of skis. And they're like, I want to rent this out. I only use this a few times a a year. And then they'll put in their specific size and someone will come and rent it. And I think that's where the marketplace element comes into play. That's where your quality of item comes into play. You need user generated reviews, all that type of stuff. So that's not something that can happen on Mount just yet. The ski butler thing is normal people not. So I think that's what we're working up towards. But I'm hoping we do not face the same problems early Airbnb did where uh, they opened the floodgates to anyone to list anything, you know, housewise, and their quality completely dropped. Like there were years I would not rent an Airbnb in the States because I knew it was not going to be up right. to standard.
0: I was in Airbnb recently in, in Atlanta and I had to get the car keys or the, uh, the keys for the hotel or for the room in the basement garage. I had to open the gas tank and the keys Whoa. were sitting in the gas tank. I said to myself, this is, this is something that's not right about this.
1: Yeah, that's weird.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there are certainly those situations that still exist on Airbnb. But for the most part, a very uh, lovely experience. You know, obviously, something we talk about a lot is you and I just thinking about the risk and what, you know, <laughs> since it's a risk podcast, I have to touch on it a little bit you know what do you think about in terms of products that you want to get involved with maybe before you even come to me from a risk standpoint i mean is that in kind of your mind when you're thinking about whether it's skis or snowboards or you know scooters the uh, availability to all these products but is is kind of the from a risk management standpoint how do you, how do you think about that
1: yeah it's uh, i mean we've talked a lot about this and i think it's one thing that's a key to the shared economy because One, you have people renting it. You don't want them to damage it, but they inevitably will. What happens when that, you know, damage happens? And then also you have the whole injury liability risk because if you're renting out an electric bike, someone rents it and hurts themselves, which we all know happens. Who's at fault and who's covered and not? And that's something we've really kind of thought a lot about at Mount. And I think it's probably because I came from the scooter world and saw firsthand the whole craziness of people getting hurt. And that was terrifying.
0: So you're thinking about... Products to offer. Obviously, automobiles and things like that are probably not areas you necessarily need to get in, but maybe you will. You know, it'd be like the next Toro, is essentially for, you know, for the shared accommodations part of the business. I I can see something like that happening. Would that be an area that you might consider wanting to get into? I, I could actually see it as a a pretty interesting bolt on if you were to list somebody's car as part of your process.
1: You know, I don't think so just because I think when a company is doing it well, like Turtle does cars really well and that's their niche. Like, it's like we would never do homes because Airbnb is doing homes. I think we've carved out a unique niche with like these items that travelers need and rental car companies have been around forever. Like I just, we're kind of creating something new, I guess, where it's like, oh, I've never actually been able to rent clothes besides rent your runway, which they're very cool. But when you're traveling, I think that's kind of the vein we'll stay in. So like Swimply, they do pools and now sports Sports
0: courts. courts? Yeah, Yeah,
1: sports courts. I don't think we'll do stuff like that either, just because that's not what we're really targeting. I mean, when you look at the traveler, it's like, what do they need? What do they want? And we're going to stick to that, I think.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Well, before I let you go here, you mentioned it early, having kind of started this business when you were 12 years old, but just kind of walk me through. And I, you know, I, I'm only asking this because I say, you know, I see a lot of these posts online, you know, where you, you're winning awards, you know, in your space very entrepreneurial, kind of walk me through the process that you've gone through from a, you know, fundraising standpoint, from a leveraging kind of your success standpoint, and how you can kind of pass some of that knowledge on to a career entrepreneur like yourself. I mean, I I guess the short question here is how do you recommend somebody trying to replicate the path that you took to get where you are? And what might you advise against doing where you had missteps or wouldn't do it again? Ooh, that's a good one.
1: Yeah. So my early journey was very bizarre. I mean, I don't think a lot of people get patents when you're 12, which is good. That should not happen (laughs) unless you're crazy (laughs) like I am. But I think my true journey really came together when I was in college. And I think what I did there, people should absolutely do. And you don't have to study entrepreneurship. Just go to any college because what they have that they don't advertise as they should is that most colleges have entrepreneurial programs, incubators, contests, prizes. And they don't care who competes in them as long as you are a college student. So when I was at Northeastern, I did their Northeastern-specific competitions. I ended up winning those. But then I also competed in Boston Universities, ASUs. I think Columbia has one. Like There's tons out there. And I ended up winning over like no, $75,000 in grants, like free money. And I don't think a lot of people know about those. So that is one thing I would absolutely do that was very important to my journey because you don't immediately have to jump into raising money. I think being scrappy and learning how to be scrappy is the most important thing you can do as an entrepreneur. I think actually if you, I I do not have this stat, this is a total gut anticipation, but if you look back at all the founders and companies that have failed, I would love to dive into their stories on how they started their companies and if they immediately from day one went and raised funding or if they took a few years to bootstrap, got scrappy and then raised funding. It'd be a fascinating stat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> would your gut tell you that if they bootstrap it, maybe they've had a, l- a little bit more success than raising money right off the bat?
1: That would be my gut reaction. Just because when you, and my investors have told me this, like when you're scrappy, you understand how to spend money and how not to and where to use it and making sure you're really getting that return on investment for every dollar you spend. If you haven't had that opportunity to be scrappy, you might not be thinking that way. And you might just look at the money as it's always coming. So yeah. if you just rate 5 million, well, what's stopping me from raising 10 the next time? And that is not the greatest mentality to have because you never know the future economy-wise, investment field-wise. Like right now, it's not a great time to raise money. Who could have seen that coming? No one. So I think it's just always be prepared for the worst and hope for the best.
0: (laughs) How has your experience been? I know you've raised some money. How has your experience been in the kind of the venture capital world as we kind of outsiders hear about VC and VC fundraising? You know, it, it sounds like it's predominantly been at least historically, very male driven, very kind of like a bros club for a long time. And then, you know, a lot of pressure has been put on that industry of late and maybe that's starting to change. But how is your kind of interaction with the venture world been relative to maybe how we hear about it peripherally?
1: Yeah, I mean, my interaction has been good, but I guess I should probably compare notes because I haven't. So I don't really know what it's like for a guy to raise funding, and I just know my perspective. So, you know, I'd be curious to know if it was a lot harder. I have no clue. So, I couldn't tell you there, but I do not raise funding the traditional way because I was not never told how, and I created my own path. First time I raised funding, I came out of a startup accelerator. One of the founders, just a random founder, gave me the best advice ever, which is like really capitalize on demo day. I took that to heart, and I did the startup's demo day. The next day, I flew to uh, Boston. I did a demo day there that Northeastern helped put together. Next day, I flew to New York and did a demo day I had put together there. And then there was a demo day the next day in New York that another founder company had put together. And so I think I pitched like 500 VCs in a span of four days. Not very normal. That is how I totally raised my pre-seed round. I just had this five-minute pitch and really nailed it. And so I played investors off each other. I was like, let's get the best people around the table because at the end of the day, I was building a business and I needed people to help me do that. Next time I raised, again, untraditional, and it's starting to become a theme. You'll notice this is also how I get customers, but I like to put people in an immersive experience for a few hours that they really can't escape and then learn as much about me as possible about Mount. And then by the end, they walk away being like, holy shit, I need to invest or I need to become a customer. I did that when I raised my seed round. I brought everyone to an Airbnb property in New York through uh, this event that was highlighting female founders, showcase Mount product because we were in an Airbnb. And I uh, brought in every investor I knew, plus our customers, plus partners. They all got to talk to each other for a few hours. Uh, And at the end of it, people walked away being like, holy shit, this company is insane. And that's how we raised our seed round and brought another amazing firm to the table. I love working with them. And now I do that with our customers. I bring them out on boats and we have an amazing time for a few hours. They don't realize they can't leave. And then (laughs) they walk away being customers of Mount.
0: (laughs) Sounds like you're taking a page from the insurance world. That's kind of what we like to do too. Uh, no, that's that's great. I think it's just super impressive, kind of where you've gone. Even since I've been working with you, which has only been a you know two or three years. But uh, really thankful for you know our partnership and thanks for being on the podcast. And uh, yeah, good luck with continuing to grow this. You know, very impressive, great company.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It was good being on.
0: Yeah, thanks, Maddie.